this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? Um, and we're off. And here Good we morning. Good day. Good day. Good day. Good, good day. evening. Good day, sir. And good afternoon. And, uh, well morrow to you, Mom. What's that? Well morrow. Well morrow. Oh, well morrow. I thought you said while morrow. No, no, I well. I like that. Well morrow. I, th- I think it means have a good day tomorrow. What does it mean? <laughs> I've got no idea. Anywho, Sounds that doesn't Irish. matter. We're, um, we have an anniversary. Do you know what it is? No, what is it? Well, yes, it is Hanuman's birthday week. Yes. But in addition to that, this is our 20th podcast. Oh, that's not technically an anniversary. It is in my world. Because <laughs> I, I think of anniversaries as marking time, not quantity. No, nah, it's all about quantity. Numbers. Okay. <laughs> it's the numbers. All right. Okay, good. Happy 20. Happy 20. Two zero. Yeah, um, good, good. So. People are still putting up with us. Yeah. I've heard a couple people listen. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing as well. So, um... Talk to me, talk to me. Back in... I'm going to start this with a, a road trip. You know, we were talking about RVs earlier yes. today. RVs. RVs. And um, I'm a bit of a fan of a road trip. I'm not sure about an RV road trip. But on a road trip once yeah. from Brussels to Amsterdam mm-hmm. with Dale Emerson... Yeah. Explain who you got to identify. So Dale Emerson is an Australian bloke. I think he's from Melbourne, but he I don't know where he is now. Might be in Byron, I think. Um, he was running uh, what was then known as Archibald, mm-hmm. right? And which is before Radar. Which, no, which is or before Zeus. Before Zeus. Oh wow! Yeah. So Archibald ran Radar and Encyclopedia Homeopathica. Yeah. Anyway, we were going to. Amsterdam uh, to see a publisher and I think there could have been one of the Janes as well as in B Jane as in B Jane and um, anywho uh, on that road trip we decided that I would write seven books ah (laughs) and I don't quite know how it happened. I also do remember that somehow Dale got lost. And you can imagine between two very large European centres, there's only one road. But he managed to get us lost. And so I remember leaning against the side of the car thinking to myself, is this a good idea? And then I thought to myself, yeah, I can bash it out in probably a couple of years. Had you done any of them at that point? Nope. Okay. I'd written my proving books. Okay. But, um, and was kind of used to compiling a whole lot of information, large amounts of information, managing it fairly well. And so, um, and so the decision was made and they were mapped out. And in fact, the mapping of those, the initial seven books bears no relationship to the... the, I didn't know that. No, because they wanted, they desperately wanted a miasmatic book. A way of understanding Hahnemann's theory of chronic disease. 
Yeah. Uh, but, but they described it differently to that. I don't even think Hahnemann was involved in the, in the title. <laughs> and so I knew in myself while I'd been teaching, you know, aspects of that. Right. Um, I, I was not the guy. And so, you know, that one became case management and, and blah, 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 right. blah. So anyway, the first one off the rank was case taking. Yeah. And, um, and I said about it. And soon afterwards, I got... And soon after, and so I, I, I started collating all the information because the, the road trip, the conversation was, how difficult is it for students? So I was responsible for the homeopathy department at Endeavour. And, a college in Australia. Yeah. And, um, and I was consistently thinking that there is no contemporary source of information right. for these learners that are getting a bachelor's degree. Right. Um, because all the old textbooks are 100 years old and no one on staff understood that. And so I was thinking to myself, well, where are the modern books? Okay, well, let's use Murphy. Well, let's not, you know, yeah. or let's use... Well, because uh, they're not textbooks. They're, nobody has written... I mean, you could argue that Luke DeShepard's book, The Revisiting Hahnemann, yeah, yeah, is yeah, probably yeah. the closest. I, I would agree with that, actually. So there was that book and not, not much else. Anyway, that was part of the impetus for it. When but was the, that one written? Do you uh, to Shepper. Yeah. 90s? Early 2000s, Early I'm going to say. Yeah. And, um, anywho, the first one to get off the rank was case taking. Yep. And I remember getting a phone call from our good friend, Jerry Goy, who said to me, what are you doing on the 14th of October? <laughs> I know where I, this conversation's <laughs> going. I went, nothing, just at work. And he said, can you come to Europe? And I went, let me see. And I did. I had a little bit of leave up my sleeve. I had 10 days. Leave up your sleeve. I had leave up my sleeve. And I had 10 days. And he said, meet me in Cannes. And, and it was just, it was as simple as that. And I knew something was up. And it would be lots of fun. And so I went. Because he was working for MTV at that time. Yeah? He was working for MTV. Mm-hmm. No. Was it MTV? I think so. Okay. And, um... And of course, I landed in Mipcom, in uh, in Cannes, which is which is of well, essentially, it's a a big conference or festival where all tech companies on the globe meet. Yeah, large and small startups and Apple. Right, and they do deals, and so it's where all the licensing deals are done. And so you pretended to be a part of this. Well, I worked in, for Apple Australia, uh-huh. clearly. <laughs> and get back to the point, the homeopathy point. Well, the point is that I wrote that book. Essentially, I wrote the first draft of that book on the roof of the hotel. Yeah, in 10 days. Uh, pretty much. Wow. You know, uh, no, because like you, as I've seen recently, when you've been writing your master's, you know, when you press go, you go. Yeah. And you were churning out pages you know, a day. And um, and it's not as if I just started, but I mean, I was collating yeah, you, and I'd done a yeah. whole lot of, of work. And so that's that's um, that was the venue. So it was writing in the daytime and then Party. drinking with um, geeks at nighttime. <laughs> okay, and so where are you going with this? I have no idea where you're going with this. Well, you were talking about case taking. And so as a, as a, as a topic for I the see. day, and I thought I'd just start off with a bit of context because... That book, that was the first. I'm very proud of that book, actually. It's it's one of the better ones. Yeah. And it is, um, and I realized that it was an opportunity to tell 
to talk to students of homeopathy about the way in which we go about our business, yeah. but in a, in a way which met critical thinking and critical evaluation. And so, you know, it was, it's not, it's, it's not just a, this is what we do. It is, this is what Taylor says. This, let's yeah. think about that. This is what David Little says. Yeah. All right. This is what, you know, Kent said. And of course, these are the directors from Hahnemann going right back to the very beginning. Which I, I think one of the reasons why I love that book is because it is, uh, there's something I, I've actually quoted you in this podcast before saying something to the effect of use your intuition and your case taking and use your brain and your analysis or something like that. Mm. What do you say? Something like that? Well, I just say that, you know, the only place for intuition is in the case taking. Yeah. And mainly because over the years I've noticed, I don't know, if, shall I give you some context for that? Why not? So I remember, I remember thinking about that after reflecting after a, a follow up. No, no, after a first consultation. Yeah, and I, it was one of those events in practice where you've got to stop and integrate it. And it happened to me in the early years of the two thousands. And I was treating this guy. He was a lawyer. I reckon he's probably about fifty seven. English old bloke. Old bloke. <laughs> uh, same age as me. Old no, bloke. you're not quite yet. You have a few months to go. Anyway. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, treating this old bloke, old lawyer, and um, and he had a problem. His problem, his actual problem, was that his newly wedded wife uh, was not pregnant. And actually, at the heart of it, that was the problem. The challenge was he was unable to maintain and sustain an erection. And the information around that was that... He'd gone to see the physician who'd given him injections of testosterone, mm. which is actually quite a strange and poorly... Into? Or into no, into oh. his bloodstream. And since he'd had his injections of testosterone, and his libido was not the problem, um, he had a prostate the size of a grapefruit. Oh, wow. And so the immediate immediate problem was that he was dribbling by drops yeah. at night. So he was going to the waking up, that awful thing that men have to deal with. It's probably the only thing, really, <laughs> compared to women. Um, but he wakes up, he's got to pee. You know, you're standing there or sitting there, nothing happens. You go back to bed, you've got to go back to the loo. You can't get back to sleep. It's evil. And he just, one drop would roll down his willy. Can I say that on a podcast? I mean, it's fine. I'm sorry. So, what about that thing that I said about Hahnemann the other day? About that to that question, why did he leave Sibiu? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, wait, we're not going to get distracted. Okay. Come, back to, right. come back to the willy. <laughs> um, so, so, there's this story that's evolving, and it, you know, I put it on a timeline, and the analysis is kind of, okay, well, you know, it's just, there's a possibility for a bunch of different remedies. And then, in, in the, in the, consultation he then said yeah i've been depressed for a few years and i thought oh, i'll explore that and then we spent the next piece of time in the consultation getting to the heart of that including how he'd been not quite right since his psychiatrist had given him lsd as part of his treatment oh wow early use of lsd outside of the army and, and therapy work and um 
And then the other thing he said is, as we were kind of drawing up, and you know when the consultation's kind of winding up and you're putting the, the yeah. bow together across the top, and he said, oh, can, maybe we should talk about this tiredness. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, yeah, I feel tired all the time, and I have done for years. Since when? He says, since I got off the boat. And I said, which boat? And he says, oh, I got here in 1967. It was a, they called him back then a 10-pound pom. <laughs> Long story, we won't right. go there. I, yeah. <laughs> and so he migrated willingly in the 60s. Actually, you think about it, quite a strange thing to do because everyone is migrating to the UK in the swinging 60s. Mm-hmm. He left. And at that moment, I said, where's home for you? And that question, oh, I just got a goosebumps. Hmm. So I said to you, I said to him, where's home? And I have no idea where that question came from. Mm. And I thought to myself later, that was really critical because he lost it. He burst into tears. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, this sort of upright lawyer, you know, skilled bloke um, is just lost it. Mm. And then he dusted himself off and he said, I have no idea where that came from. (laughs) And he said, it's not here. I'm in the wrong place. And something clicked for him. You know, like, wow. Wow. I'm in the wrong place. So what do you do with that information? Or am I taking this astray? No, you're not. Because then I've got a dilemma. Am I using a large totality, which includes loss of home, homesickness, rubrics, and all the rest of it? Right. Am I including um, I'm miserable, depressed, and having some weird dreams because of my psychiatric treatment? Or am I dealing with a guy that is dribbling by drops? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I, what I did is actually in that moment, this is this has really helped me along the way. I just ignored the, I ignored everything else except for what his clear uh, problem was. Yeah. Right there. Present, persistent, and predominant complaint. Yeah. And so I gave him uh, Agnes Castus, mm. and in three weeks, unbelievable. He said the first thing that happened is I start as I started to sleep and I knew I was getting better because I wasn't being woken up which meant that I wasn't peeing right so he, then I, he, then he described his urinary stream in, in graphic detail which right. is impressive you know when it's hitting the porcelain right you know <laughs> bang, and then uh, and then uh, and then his wife's pregnant you know and at the end of the day it's just a really really um, right. happy story but the part of it that that is around the intuition was where on earth did that question come from? It's not a question you would ask most people in a consultation. It's not on the form. Where's especially, home? Well, especially not not to use you know sort of a gender bias, but a male male conversation. Sure. Typically, that's there's more of the you know kind of stay in your lane, don't hit the feelings unless you absolutely have to. So you came from a, a place where you don't know where it came from. Yeah. And then. His response, he didn't know where it came from. You were in the zone, Mm. connecting with another human. And I think it's funny because, of course, as these podcasts tend to go, this was not exactly where we had intended to go. Although I do have my organ on on my lap, which does make for a nice place to hold my coffee. But (laughs) but you've touched on something that's so important. And I think it's really hard because, and, and maybe, maybe this really speaks to why so many people have stepped away from this giant picture homeopathy, similimum-based, lar- not just the largest totality that can be perceived, but it's like the largest totality that can be fathomed that includes job prospects, 
10 years down the road. Yeah. You know, right. It's like, who could figure that out? And I wonder if the, the polarity to that, the swing to sort of protocol based homeopathy that focuses directly on the physical symptomology isn't. The, the tension between something that has gone so far in one direction and and people trying to get, you know, something grounded. Because at the end of the day, if all you're learning is this sort of heady way of interpreting cases, you you might theoretically move someone along spiritually, but you've got a you've got a medicine that is designed to work with the physical body as well. I mm-hmm. mean, it addresses matter as you know, the 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 transmutation of matter as well as the you know, the, the, this sort of lofty concept. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, thank you for that. I really, I'm, I'm really. That's why I say that. Yeah. Because I've had a number of times in my, in my career where I have no idea in the consultation, eyeballing someone. Yeah. How we got to a place. Totally. And I completely trust it. I totally trust it. That's uh, about the inner development of the of the practitioner, yeah, I, isn't it? Yeah, because I think that's. I mean, in a way, I'd say you know, not to be wanky, egotistical, <laughs> okay, but it's yeah. th- that's the part where that's uh, unconscious competence. Yeah, you know, that's kind of. I don't like, think that's wanky, egotistical. I think that that's aspirational. Right. And we don't always do it. I mean, and you know, and really I think, hard to teach. <laughs> well, it is, and it's yeah. you know, and this is one of the things that I think makes first semester homeopathy school clinical experiences really challenging, because in the first semester, well, there are so many things that are going on, but one of them is that there is a reliance on skills that we have from our other yes points in life where we've been successful where we are skilled Good. right yeah and and applying those skills to homeopathy which they can be helpful but they're it's it's not necessarily a part of the analytical process oh that's so interesting yeah 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 right and and the other thing is that there there is this overemphasis post-kentian it's not even i mean i'm not even sure that i might have to take back some of the things i've said about kent or th- maybe thought Maybe not said, but but feeling like you know, I mean, I think it's it's, I think it's fair to say that Kent's influence took homeopathy into a different direction that then opened up, you know, via the Swedenborgian influences, a more sort of spiritual scientific interpretation of homeopathy. I mean, I think that's that's probably settled law. Could I rephrase it? Please. Because I, I'm not so sure about him involved directly in that. His pupils yeah. and subsequent generations of homeopaths absolutely took him in that direction. Because right, his case notes belie that. Totally, because all of his published cases are about swollen knuckles and, yeah. and you know, miss but, whatever with hysteria. I know, that was the thing that really got me. And, this, and a very, you know, it's like, it's He's, interesting though, because if you parse out, you have to sort of parse out who a person is. Yeah. And like, you know, Kent was trained in the eclectic medical tradition. Yeah. So, so that thinking and and standard doctoring of his time. Mm. But the thing, the thing is like, and maybe I need to just go back and and sort of visit this anew. But like one of the things I love about Kent's lectures on Materia Medica is is the way in which Kent, and maybe this is unconscious, 
uses the simple language of the remedy so beautifully, right? So like when you're teaching simple, so for someone who's listening who might not have been taught this term or hasn't, maybe has heard it in a different framework, simple language is sort of the, 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 the language of the unintegrated aspects of an individual, the ways in which that, that pattern that is not integrated into the healthy sort of generative spirit sits outside. It's an energy draw rather than an energy. And it bursts eater. out. And it bursts out and it speaks its own language. I love. It's like a this, Freudian slip. Exactly. And this is where I think Rajan Sankaran has nailed it with the terminology around the other song. Right. I love that so, so much because what he's saying is that the, the uncompensated narrative sings a song that is not a person who's just having a conversation. It's actually, if you listen carefully enough, it is the song that is being sung is, the, is what leads you to a remedy. Mm. And I interpret that, and, and, maybe, I, and, and maybe I'm paraphrasing what he says, maybe I'm saying it differently though, because I imagine that that unintegrated part of a person's sort of dynamic energy field is then a draw on their energy. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and the and more of it, the more draw. The more of it, the more draw. So the, the, the louder that song is being sung. But what happens when either a person doesn't have access to that kind of language? Well, actually, I, I take that back. Sometimes the most unexpected people sing they, they can sing the song of the simple language of a remedy and help us to find it. Uh. But one of the things, I'm curious um, what you think about this, because I find that, so I was just analyzing a case today of a gentleman, uh, early 70s, um, not a lot of simple language, not because I don't think he has access to this. He has a lot of very specific physical pathology, multi-systemic, and a variety of medications over the years. So it's a different, there's a different sort of access point. And, and I think, in all fairness, as Sankaran over the, I was going to say years, it's decades now, mm. has worked on trying to put this into a framework or a system, has sort of, you know, created the different levels of where a person is able to speak and, and has equated it to posology, which I'm... I would say I'm in disagreement hmm. of, but I get the attempt for a framework. But I, I do think that it's, there are different times, and now I'm going to step away from, from the framework he's trying to create, uh. because I think that it ebbs and flows. I think there are times when we speak through a small totality framework and language, and there are times when we have a much deeper and broader um, set of factors that are being considered. Would you... Would you agree with that? Yeah, totally. And if I understand, fungible. yeah, yeah, yeah. The case taking is the gathering of the information right. and the getting to the and getting to the center of the the problem or the hearing the song. Yeah. What do you do with that? That's right. a different process, and and it's not. I don't think it's articulated well that the getting the information is totally different from then the cognitive work. Right that occurs with the case analysis. Now, what are we going to do with this? Yeah. The understanding of it, the making meaning of it. Yeah. And so... Oh, my God. Did you ever have it happen? (laughs) Sorry, I'm totally interrupting, but you just made me think of something. 
you have a beautifully taken case. And, and this happens a lot, like in, in a teaching clinic, right? Because it's, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the way that our, you know, sort of our clinical lives work at AHE's teaching clinic, I mean, we teach, what, 600 hours of, of chronic clinic a year, and which is mostly us and then Kelly as the, you know, as the third um, clinic teacher. But like, you know, so you see tons and tons of cases and you work them through with students and you have these moments, right, where you go, okay, oh my gosh, a beautifully taken case. And then you can pull all the threads together to create like an English lit fantasy case analysis. It's so amazing. And then you're like, okay, well, what, what am I going to do with it though? Oh, you, know you mean, I mean? Like, there's no, there's no, there's no resolution. There's no remedy that or, comes out. Or either you can't find the remedy or you get this incredible case and you see students who are really like sharp and they go, oh, this is a case about, you know, uh, uh, incomplete efforts and you could see it in the mental and the emotional and the physical and da, 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 and you go okay and they have a visible goiter and you know and and they're exothalmic and the thyroid remedies don't you know that you're looking at that's you can't address that because they've got a broken organ mm. and this is more of a compton burnett kind of a prescription Do you yeah, know yeah. what i'm saying yeah and this idea that you can have two totalities evident at the same time and sometimes a really skilled homeopath who has access to sort of this largest totality capacity can miss the simplest pathological prescription. Yeah, got it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Even though you've got a great case. Or the the other thing is sometimes you you know, you hear the song and you're like, I don't know what this is. Right. I, so I'm getting much better at that one. Yeah. I know. I, I usually know at the end of a consultation if I know this remedy or not. Right. And in which case, I, I kind of call you. <laughs> or or then I say, let's call somebody else, right? Right. So one of the things that I, have, I say um, <laughs> in my teaching quite a bit is that there are three different levels of learning homeopathy. And they sort of go along with that framework of, you know, unconscious incompetence and so forth. But the first phase of learning homeopathy, it's like... The, fir- the first half of the first semester is mind-blowing because you learn a handful of remedies yeah. and then you can take everybody in your life and put them into a slot. Yeah. And it f- it's really satisfying. Oh, my God. Uh, this guy, Ian Watson, describes it really beautifully when I was a student, yeah. so a thousand years ago. He, um, he, you know, he just said, I mean, those incredible results you get from your 12-remedy kit. Right, exactly. <laughs> But it's really true, right? And you change the, the world. Beginner's luck changes the world. And yeah. it's so satisfying. The analogy I always use, it's like, and, and this doesn't really count if you have your own washing machine, but I think about living in New York City, not having a laundry machine, and having two kids who played sports and needed, you know, and needed clean clothes, right? So what, that who, feeling. Who needs a new towel every time they have a shower. Every time they have a shower. So the feeling when you go out and you do the laundry, like this only happens, I think, if you like... <laughs> If you go to the laundromat, it's a very particular thing that city dwellers will understand. You go to the laundry place, you do all the wash, you fold it up, and you bring it home. This feeling of like an exhale, the satisfaction of everything is in order. Yeah. I love that. I remember uh, watching you, participating with (laughs) you, but mainly watching you in that process. I loved it. You totally did. Oh, excuse me. Oh gosh, that was a that was a talk and a burp at the uh, same time. <laughs> That's disgusting. It is. Actually. Are we going to edit that out? Is the question? I don't think so. It's just your body. It is my body. Um, I I learned a lot about you. 
my um, my neuroses, my OCD. No, because it's not. But it's really about seeking. It's about seeking order. Yeah. And uh, and in that, wow. <laughs> But there was a way to fold everything. I, always, everything. I just used to step well, back. Living in a small New York City space, right? You've got a place for everything, everything in its place, and something, you know, the towels had to fit exactly in the space. Anyway. And the they, napkins. And the na- well, uh, They get folded differently. The napkins get folded. And then the off size tea towels. Okay. Anyway, let's move on from that. But that analogy. <laughs> and the small hand towels. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh my gosh. I have a flush. I love that. Oh. No, but. Um, the thing is that that analogy of everything in its place, in the beginning of the study of homeopathy, it's like <laughs> the angels are singing, oh, my husband is a sulfur, my sister is a pulsatilla, and everybody is a something, and like, and everybody becomes like, they're like zealots about it. It's yeah. amazing. And everything fits into into its rightful compartment, or its towel is folded in the linen closet so perfectly. Right? With a little sprig of lavender. Ooh. Okay. And a mothball. So, ew. Gross. Anyway, so that's that's the first phase of learning is as if you sort of have... It's, it's, con- it's unconscious incompetence. But it's so incredibly satisfying. Right. Right? So the, the second phase of learning homeopathy is the recognition that I don't know this pattern. Yep. Because you have to let go of the comfort that comes from what you already know and step into this other zone. And in a way, it's, I don't know this pattern, but in another way, it's also, I don't know how to interpret this totality. Is there a way that we can do better at guiding people through that process? Because I think it's kind of a a critical point, isn't it? Well, I don't, I mean, we can always do better, right? You can always do better at anything. Uh says the eternal student, but I think it's an internal process. It's internal tension. Yeah. And I think everybody experiences the pain of it in their own way of letting go of certainty. You know, you hit this in the, at the end of like semester one, where the really start stu- smart students get all worked up because they're grappling with uncertainty. Yeah. And, and you've got to let go and have this trust and whether the trust is, I mean, I never want to say, trust in like trust me i know i mean that's that's a fallacy right but but trusting a process i think yeah. and and that and that there are enough people that guide you through a process who have been through it before but that phase 2 i think is like you can get you can get really de- like destabilized in there until you get to phase 3 which is i know how to figure out the problem or i know how to find the remedy even if it is making phone calls Right. Because, you know, those of us who have been around the block a couple of times, we know the people who are the proving junkies or the material medica junkies mm. who know the weird, you know, things of a new remedy where you go, I just haven't seen this pattern before. But I know that all the patterns that I recognize, it like doesn't fit. Right. Who, who does. But does that make sense before I move on? I had a question for you. Uh, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that's the place in case analysis that can become really difficult. And I think that students who, or even practitioners, who never get, who never make a clean sort of, who never surrender to phase two of I don't know, and trust that phase three comes from a deeper learning of homeopathy, they leave to do other things, or they think that they're going to find a shortcut, or somebody's going to teach them an, an analytical process yeah. that that removes all of that uncertainty, and it might even remove 80% or 
95% of the remedies available to us, which could miss, you could miss out on one of the best, you know, healing moments for someone. Right. You got a question on that? My question (laughs) is who said, this is going back around if when we didn't have lots of remedies in the Materia Medica, we would zigzag and we would... Lippy. Is it in the... It, Lippy says it. Is it about Apis? Lippy said it in a conference proceeding in the 60s. 1860s. Yeah. About which... <laughs> That's the only 60s. Right. Hello. <laughs> That's really Save funny. Save the children of the 1960s. He said it to... And I think Herring is there. It's a really... It's a good quote. Someone talking... It's a third person. Yeah. Talking about a great case they had the other day because they'd read the proving of apis and what yeah, would we apis. have done yes. what would we have done without apis and he says and lippy said given. you know but i mean i can imagine lippy looking up for this cup of tea saying you idiot we would have given sulfur and then probably pulsatilla and we would have zigzagged no way to cure yeah as we, as we always do is it, that's what you're yeah i wanted I, I i wanted i didn't remember who said the that quote and of course mm. it would be lippy i doubt he would be as negative as that. I don't think of him as being... Well, it's a transcription of a of conversation. Who knows yeah. what his nature was. Can I say, I've had a couple of thoughts as we've been speaking, and that is that Kent is begging for a biography. Begging. Okay, don't distract me because you know I am obsessed with some of Kent's weirdness. Well, you. I think you should stick to Hahnemann. Hahnemann. I know. But I do think, as I'm writing the case analysis book, um, I'm going to do a deep dive. i got to do a deep dive into Kent. Can we just talk Kent weirdness and then we'll... let's. We should do a podcast on Kent weird. There's four biographies we've got to do. Okay, Kent, Hahnemann. Lippy. The, no, Andre Sain has to do Lippy or he has to let us under the table where he has all of But his. he's not going to do biographical stuff, is he? I don't know. I don't know how much we have oh, of the biography. No, I, I think Lippy, and then He's of course the Berninghausen and uh, Melanie. Oh, uh, Melanie, I love. No, there's no, so, there's no decent biographies. You know, I've been working my way through. Why don't all we bash them out? Berninghausen. Yeah, let me get let me finish case analysis book this summer. My goal. Uh-huh. Um, but and there's going to be a lot to talk about with that um, because there. I've been searching for primary source materials. So so one of the places where I've started is because everybody is so like hot on Benninghausen and the TBR2 and that. And I, you know, so I've just been working my way systematically through Benninghausen's work, looking for looking for solid information beyond what is being discussed now. I'll have more to report on that. But it's it's quite interesting because I we think we await with bated <laughs> yeah thank you breathing 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 um, breathing I've got a you know in my in my post thesis submission uh, recalibration of priorities I've I, you know I now have four projects happening and I need to determine how to focus on one of them deeply but it's it really actually it's fun because in doing the research for the case analysis book it's it is an opportunity to go through all the stuff anyway let's go back to Kent for a second because. Kent's weird. I, I think we could do just a whole podcast on Kent's weird. Let's do that. So, Let's not talk about it now. Can we just talk about one? Or the edited two? highlights. Go. Okay, just the edited highlights. So, What's the weirdest thing? Well, were his parents siblings? 
Oh, well, I mean... I mean, that's not the weirdest thing, I suppose. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on how you feel about flowers in the attic. But it's no, it's not his fault. But I always wanted a six-toed cat called Kent. Yes. All right. Um, well, there, there is evidence that his parents were brother and sister. But it's evidence on a, on <laughs> a on death a, certificate. Exactly. And there... And and frankly, when I think about it, if I was if I was upset at my, say my parents' funeral, and I was needing to sign off on a death certificate, would I be thinking clearly about the names of <laughs> mum and dad? Actually, that's really important because both my grandparents on my mother's side I never met; they were right. dead long before I was born. Right. So I might make a mistake about that. And my grandfather, my maternal grandfather. This is the actually great giant, size. The yeah. giant? So, he, so my maternal um, grandfather, he died uh, when my mother was, I think, two. Um, so obviously I never met him. And so the lore about him is whenever someone would talk about him, they would say he was a very tall man. Right. He was a very tall man. And that's like all anybody really knew about him. And then... Um, we found his naturalization paper. So, you know, he came from Italy, or Italy, as they say, he and my family off the boat, the whole lot. And um, they got his naturalization papers, and he was five foot seven. Mm-hmm. And they, they thought of him as like a giant. Andre the Giant. Like, literally, yeah. that's all anybody really remembered about him. Five, seven. Five foot seven. I'm almost five foot seven. Okay. Well, I'm, on a big I'm an day, inch and with a half big shy. hair. Oh, in the Europe. 80s, I was 5'7. Are you kidding with well, the you hair? Get to five, nine with okay, the can we talk about another Kent? Another Kent thing. I, I, I would like to explore that further, deeper. My grandfather? No. Oh, good. Kent. Kent and yeah. his upbringing. And I mean, because there is, there is a, you know, there. I, I mean, I, I think people use the term misogyny, but I, I think that misogyny is as we see it today, and misogyny as it was practiced on the regular in the 19th century and early 20th century are really different. But if you're really interested in Kent's weird, what's the name of the sex book? Um, If you just go on... on Sexual sexual neuroses? On sexual neuroses. I think that's what it's called. Yes. If you you want to read it, you can get a free download. Just go to Internet Archive. I think it's pre-homeopathy. I think he wrote that before. He did. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And I got distracted one day. I was doing some research and, you know, on Internet Archive. If you don't know Internet Archive, it's just A-R-C-H-I-V... Is it E? Yeah, Staff's Archive is with Noe. It's just archive.org. No idea. I think that's what it is, and you can you can either get full tech like PDF downloads of books, which is great for digital editing and note taking. But sometimes, if they're not available, some books you can you can just rent for an hour, which I never understand the purpose of this. But you can just you can renew some of the newer books. Oh. It's probably a licensing issue, but um, you can get anything. But you can if you just like do an Internet Archive search, James Tyler Kent, and you'll find this book, and it's. I was going to say fascinating. It's sort of, it's sort of disturbing. It is disturbing. Yeah. 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 But I mean, but it really leads into sort of the understanding of the female anatomy and how it was, you know, um, understood. I mean, and therefore he was a man of his time. He was totally a man of his time, oh. but but had a lot to say and had a lot of opinions. But, mm. you know, I was really, you know, one of, I mean, studying the history of medicine is just absolutely, it's so fascinating. And studying the history, like if I had, if I had more lives to live, I would, I would be a midwife. 
and I would study the history of midwifery and birthing process and sort of female-led medicine and sort of the underground traditions of female medicine. And then there's this tension that happens when, you know, men decided they were better at birthing babies, even though they had never seen it, you know, <laughs> seen it happen. And there's this, there was this time period, and I'm always, I'm so terrible with dates unless I'm like really thinking about them, but there was this time period where, where the beginning of gynecology and obstetrics was happening. And so, I mean, I guess this would have been around the Victorian age, right? And so the, the, the male doctor would have the woman perform her own internal exam and report to him, mm. right? So anyway, so, that, so Kent, as a product of his time, he would have been, you know, he was a product of that. But the sexual neuroses part, oh, well, hysteria, you know, the whole idea that the uterus... Unbelievable. Right? So the root word for the, you know, the old, the Latin term for uterus is the same, like hysterectomy, hysteria, right? And so they would, the, the uterus was thought to move around the body, causing problems within women. And yeah. Anyway, I was about to launch into sort of another historical thing that I think is better left unsaid. So uh, I think... There's still, going right back to the beginning. Yeah. There's four volumes written. You're, ta- you're, you're writing the fifth. I'm writing the, the fifth. The other two are pretty much ready to go. So let's knock off the seven volumes and then we start the historical series. <gasps> oh my gosh, that's such a tease. I love it. I, I, you've got a glint in your eye. Because you know I'm like so into this. Can't, but I, the Hahnemann one, I think... There, there's things that I have learned that I really want, I really think would be helpful for us as homeopaths to understand sort of the, the ways that it's evolved separate from what Hahnemann, you know, what he systematized. And there are so many ways that people say, yeah, but that time is over, blah, 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 except that he really did crack it. He really did determine the possibility in what would have been termed eternal life, but which is really the unraveling of chronic disease. And I think if we if we really do our work, we can, you know. On on another on another related matter, because I've heard you say that a number of times. I constantly say it. And clearly it's been interpreted as by some members of the community as, oh, Denise is anti-everything else than Hahnemann. I know. It makes me sad. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about that? I, I no. No. But, okay, I, I will say one thing, which is, um, I just, I think that there's something to be said about Hahnemann's work, and then we can, like, if we really understood it, then everything else can be, applied in a way that enhances what we do but we need the foundational work you know it's like being a potter you know i mean i guess all my analogies go back to being a potter but right I mean, it's the she one means I have. A, uh, a, a, a master of ceramics yeah master. as opposed no. to a harry but oh right oh good i didn't even think about that um but you know so i started as you know throwing pottery in 1989 1990 uh-huh and um and while I have not been consistent because the last, whatever, 10 years I didn't have a wheel, but it's like 
it is, I think it's one of the most humbling um, crafts and oh. it's, it's ancient and, and there are so many ways that you can go from the basics to something functional or something ornamental or whatever. But at the end of the day, there are basic things you must understand. You know, where does the clay come from? What constituents of the clay are going to impact the firing temperature? You know, what, you know, I'm working with a brand new clay that I just learned I cannot use glazes with zinc or it's going to blow up in the kiln. You know, so there, there are all these. What? Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'm on it. Don't worry. I'm not Hang gonna on. Blow up now I'm interested. I know, right? Because the explosions in the kiln could really be costly. Yeah, I'm but, invested in that. But if there is a way in which understanding these foundational basics, and you could say, well, okay, so the cavemen were, you know, doing whatever, and I can be a production potter, and I can just use my extruder, and then I can throw it on a mold, and I can, you know, fire it in this way. But at the end of the day, it's like they're they're basic parameters that are around, you know, the four elements their integration with one another and chemistry, you know, in order to be able to do this in the 21st century where, you know, I've got a kiln that fires to 2000 degrees and I need to be able to make sure that I'm not blowing it up. It's the same way that, you know, looking at homeopathic remedies, we should understand where they come from because we are working with people's health and they are powerful remedies. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm just trying to get us to have a community dialogue built around respect for this incredible modality. And I think if we all stop worrying about somebody coming to steal our cheese, we can then start to look at what each other has learned. But but to really look at the 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 basics of what we do. And then you can look at every offshoot for the beauty that it's brought to what See, we do. It's really interesting because at the end of the day, I'm not sure that it's... I mean, I think you're right about the stealing of the cheese. That's quite an image, that one. Thank you. Uh, it's probably because I'm starving. But I also... And I want cheese. Do you? No. I am also of the opinion that when people have a bad time in our clinics, they don't come back. And so... Wait, when people have... Do you mean students? No. Oh, you mean a client? When a client has an unfortunate or no outcome in a a clinical situation, they don't come back. You know, for me, that that 5% of folks that I see once, you know, they don't come back. They'll go somewhere else. They go to the naturopath, the osteopath, or another homeopath, or a different style of homeopath. Right. And... I, I also think that somehow, at the heart of it, the dramas that we are seeing as a consequence of some other styles of prescribing of homeopathy that we've talked about at other times are not fully known by the people that are prescribing. Oh my gosh, that's such a good point. So in other words, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that every one of us as a homeopath will have cases for which there's not you know, a great outcome. It's like anything. Yeah. And then those clients go somewhere else. And that because of the, because of the situation we're in with a clinic, you know, with the teaching clinic and with busy practices and, and with a net that we work within a network, right. Where we're sharing these experiences, it's kind of the canary in the coal mine for some of these sort of newer interpretations of homeopathy that are producing outcomes that we're seeing as actually being. Can I give you an example? Deleterious. Yeah. So when I, when I was, uh, I forgot when, when I was in India. When did I go to India? Whenever it was, 2000, maybe 11 or something like that. 
and I had I spent a lot of time with Rajan in uh, uh, Mumbai, and interviewed him a couple of times, and then sat in on his clinic and you know and and stuff. There was a lot. We spent quite a bit of time. And the point that I was trying to get across to him is that, do you not understand? He was not hearing that there was um, collateral damage as a consequence of students that he taught um, doing sensation method, right? At the time... Before they had the foundational basics of understanding what they were doing with homeopathy. Exactly. Right. And so, you know, for me as running a department of homeopathy, I'm in that I'm in that mix all the time. It's the only issue. Yeah. Oh my God, it's so huge and we've got to fix it and all the rest of it. And when I was speaking to Rajan and contextualizing it, he says, no, that doesn't happen. And over a period of time, I don't know that he's, you know, he fully grokked it. But I described to him the consequence of, you know, the 5%, maybe the 5% of his clients that went somewhere else and definitely the 5 or 10 or 50% of clients that were going elsewhere because of the consequences of poorly conducted sensation method. So I think, and we need to go back because there are going to be a lot of people, well, I don't know how many people are listening, but there will be people listening that won't understand what happened back at the turn of the 20th into the 20th century. 21st, wait, 21st century. 21st century. My God. You well, are. I really Victorian do need it. I know. I am. I live in Victorian times. No, but when, when, when Rajan first, you know, he's such a, he's such a um, charismatic teacher and such a great thinker and he's second generation home, like he knows his homeopathy to his core. Yeah. And, and this is what happens with inspirational teachers, as, not just inspirational. The, the great thinkers take what exists and they try to take it to the next step because that's what happens like you 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 achieve some level of mastery and you want to experiment with something else and it was it was pretty amazing i mean the very beginning of that cycle of new learning was exciting i mean you know i definitely spent some time following him around yeah. and loving what i learned and then there was then there was and then it became like a thing and then it became sort of a, almost a cult phenomenon and what happened was there were people that took it to a completely different place yeah. that moved it away from this sort of core, you know, and, and I don't, I, I just want to be, I just want to be clear not to judge and also to honor oh, no, that no, no, we're, no, no. You, that people understand that what we're talking about is what happens when new inter- information comes into the pipeline and, and the inadvertent consequences of someone who, who sort of commands and, and deserves so much respect who, is just doing their thing, but then other people take it into something else, right? And at the end of the day, that, sorry, that's the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. I was actually using that as an analogy and as an example because the thing that's in our face most of the time right now in our clinical context are these people that are coming with spreadsheets of remedies that they've taken and they're two years old, right? And, and we're seeing people who have a diminished level of health. But what I'm saying is, and the point that I'm trying to make, is that I don't know that the people that are prescribing those remedies perceive the problem because totally those, those clients are going elsewhere. Yeah. And so I think there's, there's, there's got to be a, a dialogue Totally. And I think to take it back to what you were saying, because, you know, neither one of us has an ego large enough to say, oh, yeah, I, I solve every problem that comes across oh, my desk. Yeah. You can imagine how many people 
have encountered our work and say, I didn't get a good result. But I think one of the things at least that we try to do is to operate only by best practices and what we know from 230 years of clinical experience of the way homeopathy was most intended to be practiced, that we do, I mean, I hope we haven't harmed people through judicious practice. What we're seeing now is really different than that. And I and and I could never be judgmental if somebody doesn't know, A, that there are people littered about the place with negative consequences of that. Yeah. If somebody doesn't know that this is what's happening, you just assume that everything that you see is the best results that you have. And this is why, and I think we need to wrap it up and we'll talk more about this next time, but I think this is one of the things that I love about and I'm most frightened by with running live clinic is that, um, you know, it's so humbling to be in front of 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 people or the hundreds of students that are tracking outcomes in our clinics that our results are there for everyone to see, you know, and those results are, and, and the logic of making those decisions is talked through in great detail. And also there's, you know, I hope no hubris, because I think we say this is the best way to start, and then we have to see the results in order to know whether or not we've made a good clinical decision. But the safety of the of the client and the, and the, the um, yeah, like the, there is something that's so important about making sure that we are adhering to a do no harm. But in a live clinical situation, it's like everybody knows, did we get a good outcome or not? And if we didn't, we've got to talk through what could have been done differently. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about gauging outcome is if you put too many, too many ingredients into the soup, you don't know what is affecting that change. And so there's a way that the follow-ups, you know, understanding how to unravel a case is the biggest part of, of case analysis. It's not the first prescription. It's what happens six months or six years down the road. Anyway, we have 10 minutes before our research meeting, and I'm I kidding. need breakfast. I want to keep talking. I know you do. Nobody wants to keep listening. Everyone needs to go to the loo now, and everyone needs to have a <laughs> snack. So on that right. note... Um, for those who are listening, my goodness, thank you. And you know, and if there are topics people want to hear, write us. Let us know uh, what, yeah. what kinds of things would be helpful for people to know. Yeah. Or for us to explore. Right? We do have uh coming up, let's do some advertising. Uh number one, um because we've got early enrollment coming up at the school, uh we're doing a couple of interviews. Oh my gosh, yes. Including with Awesome alumni. Yes. Um, so there's I've lined to up. Talk about the school experience. That's exactly <gasps> it. Plus, I and you, but the but it's me that's going first this time. Next Thursday, whatever the date is, next Thursday. So no a week idea. today. Yeah. Today's the twentieth. On the twentieth at seven p.m. Eastern, I'm doing the first of my four lectures on the history of healing. I love that. 40,000 years from go to woe. <laughs> At the end of the day, to provide context for where homeopathy fits into that uh, picture. And uh, and it's totally free. Anyone can come. And uh, It's a crowd pleaser. Oh! And, you, a- and you'll also get a window into sort of why we named our animals what we did. Hildegard of Bingen, Sir Isaac Newton, and Luna Lovegood. And Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> 
that's the end of my periodic table lecture. Anyway, all right, all right okay. guys. That's it. See ya. Bye. AHE is changing the face of homeopathy education by raising the bar through rigorous academics and unparalleled clinical training delivered live through the soulful use of cutting-edge technology. AHE prepares its students to become fully-rounded homeopathic practitioners from anywhere in the world. Apply today and ask about the early enrollment discount at ahe.online.